What is the thing that we can all do to really support the growth and development of this child and raise their own belief in what's possible? The educational landscape has shifted. The social mobility is very segregated. Therefore, politically, the same thing is happening. The decisions you make around that child's education are of paramount importance. What can we do that would make educators' lives better? How do we make change that you can see in the classroom? They don't have summers off. They're not on a break. Most of the time that kids are not in school, teachers are still working. To impact our urban public schools, to impact the life of a child. We really wanted to elevate the profile of our city as well as elevate the opportunities that exist in education here. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. Well, hey, Doug. Thank you for joining me today. I am crazy excited to sit here with you and enjoy a glass of beer and wine virtually. Cheers. Cheers to you. <laughs> so, Doug, I know you really well. I, I, We have gone to church together, I don't know, 15 years-ish? It's maybe been a while. More. It's... I didn't know you personally when I started going to Bandera Road, but I I actually literally became a member of the Bandera Road um, Church in 1998, which blew my mind because that was, I mean, 1998, I'm dating myself. I was an adult. (laughs) You were at least what, 15, 16 years old? I wish. And I've, I've been going to church there ever since. I made the transition from the Bandera Road campus to the downtown campus at a really pivotal moment in my life where I was already going through a lot of changes. And it felt like a godsend that church was changing with me. And so I just made the conscious choice to start going to church downtown, which is where you lead. So why don't you tell us a little bit of your story and how you came to be the leader of City Tribe downtown um, and introduce yourself to to our audience. Yeah, so uh, I was on the pastoral staff at the uh, BRCC Bandera Road City Church. And then I guess it was in the mid 2000s where I felt like a lot of churches were moving away from the social problems that we're dealing with in the inner cities. And I sense that really, rather than Christ followers or, you know, Christian people moving away from all the problems further and further out, that it was probably wise for some of us to move in and serve the under-resourced and all of that. And so one of the things that I've always loved about you and other educators who have said, hey, you know, there are a lot of great districts around our city, but some of you guys have decided to, hey, I'm going to move into the inner city. I'm going to serve in SAISD and other inner city districts and schools. And I just so appreciate that because we all have fallen in love with people and kids here in the inner city uh, who really, you know, desperately need a lot of help. And, you know, and then one of the things I thought I was going to do when I moved into the inner city was that I was going to help everybody, but it turned out I was learning a lot and people were helping me as well. So I think that I've been very well accepted down here. And I really appreciate that, that people have welcomed me with open arms and, you know, we've had a good run down here in the inner city and we just, we love living down here. We love engaging in the culture 
down here and it's just been a fabulous ride. And so you, as you know, Jen, but your audience doesn't know, we purchased the Cameo Theater in what's, you know, St. Paul Square near Sunset Station. And that building is a big part of our story because uh, it was the first African-American theater in San Antonio. So it was the first place where our African-American brothers and sisters could walk through the front door of the theater. A lot of the other theaters in the inner city of San Antonio back in the day, people had to go into the colored entrance in the back. So I got to know, uh, I guess, uh, African-American activist, Nettie Hinton. We were at the friendly spot watching Spurs games. And I didn't know, I'd heard of her, but I'd never met her. So we're sitting there watching the Spurs and we got to talking and she found out that I was the pastor that had, you know, our church had purchased the Cameo Theater. And so we started chatting it up and she explained to me, by the way, if you don't know about Nettie Hinton, fascinating woman, the first African-American female to go to and graduate from the University of Texas at Austin. She marched with Dr. King back in the day. Developers in the inner city fear her because she can be quite uh, hard to deal with if you get on her bad side, you know, and I told her, I said, Nettie, you know, I heard you were hard to get along with. And she said, well, no, not usually, but if we disagree, I can be quite formidable. <laughs> but what she explained to me, Jen, was that when she was a little girl, the cameo was the only place she could go through the front door. And when she would go to the Majestic Theater downtown, she had to go into the colored entrance in the back. And so she told me that her African-American ladies choir group recently was singing at the Majestic and she still had to go in the back door recently, but because that's the door to the green room. <laughs> so she, she picked up, you know, she took the program from that choir concert and she went to the historic African-American cemetery where her mother was buried. And she put that program on her mother's grave and she said, mama, you're never going to believe where I sang tonight. Mm -hmm. And she, that really got to me. Yeah. And I told that story at church and let people know that because of these types of stories, we have to continue to be a church and a place where everyone can come through the front door. And as you know, we're a fairly diverse tribe or group of yeah. us down there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It reminds me, my brother and Ben and his wife just put an offer on a house and it was accepted and they saw an original copy of the deed. And I'm just going to read to you because he sent me a picture of it. Um, what the original deed says for that house. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, if it's not front and center in your life, you often, you often forget stories like that. Um, Part of the consideration for the said property and which the perjurer agrees for themselves, their heirs and their assigns shall be the covenants running with the land. Number one, that neither they nor their heirs, executors, administrators, or assigns shall sell or lease any portion of this said property to any person of Negro blood or to any Mexican. Oh, my. And, you know, they just bought this house and they're having to... Uh, go through some legal stuff to take that clause 
out of the original deed. It hasn't had many owners since the house was built, which is why the deeds still stand. That's completely illegal now, but yeah. it's still there in the deed. And so, you know, we sent that to our family and we also had a moment of like, if my grandfather and my grandmother were alive and knew that they were able to purchase that home in this neighborhood, like it means something really different. And so I think bringing those stories and saying those stories out loud is really important. And I do feel like our church in particular honors those stories in a really special way. And it's crafted its own story in the city that resonates with everyone else who has a story like that. Um, so thank you, like personally, thank you for leading. Oh, you're certainly welcome. And, you know, one of the ones that's popped up recently that's agitated me a little bit is, you know, there, there's there been a lot of Asian hate yeah. recently. And you know that Lee Wong is our, yes. you know, associate pastor who does a lot of the teaching at our mm-hmm. church. And I saw the way that that hurt him, just the, you know, the hate speech that was, I guess, yeah. graffitied on the noodle shop out there by yeah. UTSA. So unbelievable. So, we just posted and a group of us decided we were all going to pitch in to encourage the guy at the noodle shop, you know? And so he posted on his website, a way that you could like buy gift cards. And you know, the cool thing about that guy was that he decided he's not going to keep any of the money for himself, but he's going to use those gift cards to give the community members so that they can come and eat for free. So I think everybody's going to win on that one. And we're going to show people in San Antonio that we're not going to tolerate Asian hate or hate towards African-Americans or Mexican-Americans or Latinas, Latinos of any sort, you know, so we, we love everybody here. And that's one of the things that's special about our city is by and large, you know, people tend to get along around here. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's, you know, it, it takes uh, one of my other podcast guests said something that stuck with me and it stuck with me ever since he and I talked. Uh, Anthony said, there's a difference between having really great intentions and being intentional. And I think that in order to weather some of those obstacles and structural forces that exist still today in 2021, you have to actually be intentional Um, You have to to say it, you have to name it, and then you have to be really intentional. And part of that intentionality, for me at least, has been having like these personal mantras that I can go back to that are rooted in truth. And sometimes my own mantras are rooted in scripture. And when you and I first started talking, I thought, you just wrote a book, and it is rooted in the gospel, it's rooted in scripture, um, and I think every part of it, practically every page of your book could be a personal mantra. And so I thought it was really fitting for us to sit down during this particular season of miseducation as we think through and feel through all the things that are happening, both the the uh, inequity that's a pandemic and then COVID, the COVID pandemic. People are, we're undone. I mean, I I don't know another way of saying it. Like everybody's tired. It's been hard. I think there's light at the end of the tunnel and more and more of of us are being vaccinated and more and more kids are back in school. And so there's a lot of hope, but there's also just exhaustion. Like you're finally, things are finally slowing down just enough for people to say like, 
what the heck did we just live through? <laughs> like, you don't yeah. have time when it's happening to process it. And now that things are, are a little bit slower and a little bit more like what it used to be, it's the time now for people to just think like, what, what just happened? What did we just, how did we even do that? Um, and so, you know, being intentional about a personal mantra has really helped me. And I'm hoping that listening to lots of different people talk about their own mantras is helpful to someone somewhere. Um, but I would love it if you would give us the context of the book and yes. tell us a little bit about um, the title and how you came up with the title and just let's just dig in a little bit. Okay. Well, I'm super, I'm really glad you asked. And I've sat down with educators both at the, you know, elementary school level, secondary, you know, I've talked to one college professor that was just in tears explaining to me this kind of education was not what I signed up for, you know, and I, I know that a lot of teachers are so passionate and they do such great work and it can just be emotionally unraveling to have to deal with this. And throughout different times of life, I had to come to terms with this mantra the title and this, this isn't the actual book. This is like my copy that I still have. It's I am not defeated. So I'll tell you the story that is connected to that title. I guess it was about 20 years or so ago when my wife and I were really struggling. I was struggling emotionally. I'd been to several different counselors. I'd been to a psychiatrist who gave me a prescription for a clinical depression that I was going through at the time. And I was out of the ministry. I was not a pastor at that time. I was working in the marketplace in corporate training. And it seemed like much of my life was struggling emotionally in my marriage. And when your marriage is jacked up, it really does a number on you. So uh, I was going through some counseling and I, I've gone to over my lifetime, I think about seven different counselors. So I'm a big proponent of going to therapy and submitting yourself to someone and getting some help. So I've been to every different kind of counselor as well. So everything from full-on psychiatrists to what's called spiritual freedom ministry or counseling. And so the, the title of this book is based on something that happened in what's called a spiritual freedom ministry counseling. I went to another state. And I was sitting down with these two men and one of the men was just praying the whole time. And the other man was leading me through this very thorough inventory. In fact, I had to fill out the inventory before I ever flew up there. And he went down the inventory and I was confessing every embarrassing sin that I've ever committed and uh, bringing out into the open with this guy, anything I'd ever struggled with. And these guys told me, he said, uh, one of the men said, you know, it seems like you feel very defeated, like you're not going to be able to get up from this because I, my marriage struggles really made me feel beat down. It, it wasn't my wife that did it. It was my own dysfunction in my own life. So I'm not throwing rocks at my wife. Uh, as you know, somehow by the grace of God, we made it and we've been together now for 33 years. And. I'm threatening another 33 years if she keeps it up. But I was in that counseling session and the guy said, you, you seem defeated. And so he said, what I want you to do is I want you to make a declaration out loud. I am not defeated. 
Now, here's the weird part, and I know this is going to sound strange to a lot of your listeners, and it'll sound strange to you. Okay, I'm ready. I was thinking in my head, I am not defeated. And Jen, I'm not lying when I say my mouth, just in a little bit lower voice in my voice, said, I am defeated. That's great. And the counselor guy stopped me, and he said, Doug, no, I think you, you didn't understand. You're supposed to say, I am not defeated. And so they said, let's try this again. So again, I'm thinking in my mind and my brain is telling my mouth to say, I am not defeated. But you know what came out of my mouth again? I am defeated. Man, and those heavy. men, they stopped me there and they stopped and they just prayed. You know, they're praying for me. What some, you know, people would call a spiritual warfare prayer. And then they said, let's try it again. And on the third time, I was able to think in my mind and say with my mouth, I am not defeated. And when I flew home, my wife, Jeannie, told me, she said, Doug, you know, that wasn't a silver bullet, but it was a breakthrough for me. She said, after that experience, it was like you were more clear. It was like a cloud of confusion was gone from you. You were more yourself again. So I've always remembered that experience. And some people could question, well, what was that? Why was I saying, you know, why was that happening to me? How is it working? And that's one of the other parts of my book that is strange to some people, but it's the spiritual component of our own emotional health. I think we see plenty of evidence in our world that there are dark spiritual realities in our world that are causing hatred of people of other races and inequality, injustice, and systems of oppression. We see plenty of evidence in our world of division, right? You know, there have been some politicians that have been very, very divisive, and that's not the way that God likes to operate, right? He likes to bring people into unity and, you know, civility and the like. So. Anyways, some people in church world over-spiritualize, right? It's like everything's the devil, right? You know, (laughs) you know, there's like the coffee demon, the chocolate demon. Okay. And you and I would say that's a little cray cray, right? Yeah. Uh, So there's the crazy religious people. And then there are the people that believe everything is medical. And I believe there's the medical, the spiritual, and the psychological. So All three are kind of the trifecta of healing and balance in in my personal worldview. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I feel like it's a it's a little bit symptomatic of of educators and the education world and academia in general to sort of under spiritualize things um, because we live in like this natural separation of church and state. And it's like, it's law, right? Like the, and I don't mean like legal law. I mean, like, it's like a natural law that public school is disassociated from spirituality. And I, I have always struck, I mean, I've been an educator for 20 plus years And I've always struggled with taking my personhood out of my work life and and to disassociate spirituality from my work life feels to me like you're you're touching my personhood, you know, like you're asking me to alter who I am as a person when I know that there is 
a higher connection that I have with whatever you want to call it. You want to call it the universe or God or, you know, you can call it whatever you want. I choose to call it the one and only God that I am connect. I have a direct connection to. And to separate that because of my work life has always been sort of a a delicate balance for me. And I don't know that I was ever extra good at it. Like I, I feel like I brought, I brought in my spirituality and God wherever I was. And sometimes that was privately. If I uh, opened the building on Sunday by myself and walked the hallways and prayed over every classroom, that was something I did in private, but I did do it. Like that really did happen. Um, If I asked you to come to my school and pray over it, that happened. It might have happened in private, but it did happen. Um, So I was never perfect at separating my spirituality from my work life. But I think that it's common to under spiritualize the things that we're experiencing in work. Um, And I don't think we talk about I don't think we talk about it at all. I think that's an interesting observation. And I remember some years ago that a group of us emerging pastors, if you will, we were invited to a round table, I guess, theological discussion in which a lot of guys were deconstructing the way church works. And it was down in Nassau, Bahamas. And we were in the home of Dr. David Allen, who's a Harvard professor. I think he's also done some teaching at Yale. And one of the things that really surprised me about what he talked about was he was talking about a very real, dark, spiritual presence. And then I familiarized myself with the work of Dr. Richard Gallagher, who is actually a very devout Catholic. He's a board-certified psychiatrist and professor of clinical psychiatry at New York University and or actually New York Medical College, and he's Ivy League trained, brilliant guy, and he works with Catholic priests to discern the difference between multiple personality disorder and exorcisms and schizophrenia, because all three are realities. And so the average bear isn't qualified to you know, figure out the difference between those three things. Uh, and MPD is pretty, pretty common, uh, uh, multiple personality disorders. And so a lot of people will try and get at that one from a spiritual standpoint when it's really just a psychological thing that we were wired with to be able to compartmentalize really painful memories. But anyways, what Dr. Gallagher has acknowledged and teaches is that there really is a spiritual side yeah. to this. And one of the things that I've noticed when I've traveled around in different countries and you and Carlos have been, you know, with me to Africa, mm-hmm. the people in Africa have no problem acknowledging the spiritual component yep. of their lives. The same is true in South and Central America, all over the world. And so those of us who are Western naturalists who grew up in our system or way of thinking, if you will, we, we like to say we're tolerant, right? We like to say that we welcome everyone, that we're not prejudiced and all that. Yet when one of our African brothers and sisters comes here to America, 
and starts talking about their spirituality and believing that certain problems in life are spiritual, we say, yeah, you can come here and and say what you can wear your African clothes and play your African music. But when you start talking about your worldview and the way that you view spirituality, we don't want that here. And so it's really insulting to people like that, as if we think we've got it all together and have figured out all of reality. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I had to come to terms with, Jen, as a recovering Western naturalist who only believed in what I could see and put in a test tube and observe, Mm -hmm. is that just perhaps we haven't figured it all out. Maybe people in other parts of the world have learned some things that I haven't and I can learn from them. Yeah, for sure. And I, I feel like that honors like a lot of indigenous cultures who believe in deeply in spirituality and in, and in like the, uh, the essence of their ancestors, you know, and, and the stories that their ancestors bring forth in their own lives and carrying out those stories. And I do, I feel like maybe that's part of the reason that I'm so drawn to a mantra. It's like the mantras that run in my head are mon- are things my elders used to say to me constantly, you know, if they're, they're little things, but they're in, I hear my grandmother's voice when I say it, you know, like, your your she used to tell me all the time your presence is not requested it's demanded you will make time for your family when we have a family thing you're coming to the family thing it's not a request your presence is demand and i i you know when i my my boys are uh teenagers and they have their own social agendas now and they have their own social networks. And, and so sometimes I have to tell them, I've heard myself say like, your, your presence is not requested. You're coming to the family thing, you know? Um, and just saying like, you can do, you can do hard things. Mihita. like, that is my grandmother. I and mean, when I start, when I start feeling like this is too big of a hill for me to climb, I hear my grandmother say like, come on, Jen, you can do hard things. Ahita. This is nothing. Don't sweat the small stuff. Like those kind of mantras. Those are, I do feel like my, there's some, there's some spirituality to like listening to the words of the people that came before me and watching and learning from the work that they've accomplished. Um, and so again, like I go back to, I, this idea of like not talking about it or not acknowledging that, there is some spirituality happening that affects the way we think it, it affects our mood and our attitude towards something. And, and like to your story, I thank you for sharing your story, by the way, of, of that internal struggle of, of like saying out loud, I am not defeated that that is like a, a thing you had to overcome mentally. Like you had to work through that. But if you hadn't, like if they hadn't pressed you on it, maybe that would have been the recurring thought in your head. Well, that's right, Jen. And it was a, a mantra that I needed to bring back this past year because I was experiencing my own fair amount of discouragement. And I tell you what pushed me over the edge to make sure that I got this little book finished last year was that during the COVID crisis, you know, which by the way, we're still kind of in. I did zero funerals for people who died of COVID. Now, when I say that, I'm not in any way minimizing the virus. It is legit, for real, dangerous. We've got to do everything we can to eradicate it, be safe. You know, I wear my mask, all that. We wear masks at church and distance and, and all that. 
but I had a number of, in fact, every funeral I did last year in 2020, with the exception of one, was emotional health related. So I had all these funerals and it was, Jen, it was people in their 20s and 30s that grew up on the Western naturalist worldview. And if I never have to look into the eyes of another adult parent my age again, who's having to bury their 20 or 30 something year old kid, it'll be too soon for me. And so it made me say, I've got to get this message out there to people that when they're in their darkest hour, their dark night of the soul, when everything's going sideways in their relationships or marriage or career or health or whatever it may be, they can say, no, I'm not defeated. I am not defeated. I can get back up again. All I have to do is ride out this wave. And so one of the counselors that I went to some years ago, she explained to me that my emotions, you know, when I would go through a depression wave, it was like a wave in the ocean. And if you just, you know, when a wave goes over you in in the ocean, you just have to stay there until the wave gets, gets over you. And it does, it always passes over and you just have to go from one wave to the next to get through it. And then eventually the water calms down over time. But there is that moment of panic, right? When it's like way over you and you're like, yes. And, and I felt that panic. And so I, I had to check in with my counselor. You know, I just did a quick call with him. Yeah. I call this, you know, guy from time to time about different things I'm dealing with right now, you know, and Mm -hmm. just to check in because when you start, seeing the emotional gauge on your dashboard starting to redline, you have to sit there and think, okay, what's causing that to redline? It's like in our cars, you know, we have these warning lights, you know, or gauges or whatever. And at any given time, you know, a lot of us in our physical cars, we just don't do the maintenance on them. And so, you know, all of us have like that tire pressure gauge that's going off all the time. And so anyways, with our, with our souls, our spirits, our emotions, We have to pay attention to those gauges, you know, to just check in with someone. And one of the things that I'm a big proponent of is a tribe, creating a tribe. You know, years ago, perhaps you saw the little book by Seth Godin called Tribes. Sebastian Younger wrote one on tribes on, you know, belonging to a group. So soldiers came back from war and didn't have a sense of place and comrades that they could, you know, be in community with. And they, they struggled emotionally. Like one of the things that he wrote about in that book was when the, the people that came over here to America, oftentimes people in the colonies would leave the colonies to live with the indigenous people, the native Americans. And they they would go to war and sometimes the Native Americans would capture colonists and then they would allow them to leave and they would stay with the Native Americans. And the reason why is because the Native Americans were in tribal groups that were interdependent and the colonists were more, I guess, Lone Ranger kind of people, you know, rugged individualism, all of that. And we are not designed or created to live as islands of ourselves. And we have to work really hard at creating the tribe. Yeah. I, I, would, 
one of the one of the thing points that or the question, a really important question I think you ask in your book is what if we created a community where other strugglers could come alongside, lock arms together, and give each other the emotional nutrition we need to work through our feelings and struggles. And when I read that paragraph, it stopped me and I thought like Man, what if we did that? What and just the notion of a community of strugglers feels like an invitation to me, and it's 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 freedom giving because then it's acknowledging that like I'm not alone in my struggle. Struggle's a part of life. Struggle doesn't have to be um, doomsday either. Like this is what makes our community work, and we can help each other. Uh, and you know, I had a mentor um, that read. We read a book for school the five dysfunctions of a team. And one of the things that makes a team a great high performing team is having a common challenge. Uh, But sometimes it's hard to find a common challenge, right? But if the common challenge is that we're all a group of strugglers, like that is not hard to define. Everybody is struggling with something. And if we created a community where strugglers came alongside each other and locked arms, what kind of community would that be? Yeah, well, I guess educators are a little bit like pastors because we think that we have to have our stuff together, have it all together. And one of the things that's so great about most of the educators I know is that they're very poised people and very good at presenting information and creative and clever and smart and all of that. One of the things where I think we could all grow, whether educators or pastors, in our in our authenticity. For sure. And the the language that you were just quoting from my book actually came from a guy named Larry Crabb, who's a very well-known therapist, brilliant guy. And he's done a lot of work on that. He wrote a book called Connecting, and he casts a vision for creating these groups where fellow strugglers could lock arms together and it gives us what he would call the psychological and spiritual nutrition to get through. So what we do is a lot of times we struggle by ourselves. And then when we're redlining about to blow up, we go to a counselor or whatever. Whereas if we would just get the regular nutrition, you know, it's the wellness kind of thinking, you know, rather than just going to the doctor all the time. Right. And so Larry Crabb would never say there's not a need for for therapy, but he would say that a lot of the help that people need can be found in these tribes, in these communities of fellow strugglers. And what I've learned over the years is, is that if I lead with my strengths and my victories, people tune me out as just another guy that's, you know, whatever, right? But when I lead with my weakness, and that's actually in the Bible where the Apostle Paul said, you know, that he he would lead with his weakness, talk about brokenness. And that's one of the stories in the first part of my book is about leading with our brokenness, not having it all together. And I know a little counterculture these days, I think. I guess it is, you know, I think like people want everybody to see them as having it all together and being able to balance everything and balance work and life and and spirituality. And from the outside, looking in on social media, everything is happy and and we're all progressing and moving along and fighting the good fight. And internally, I think like you said, 
teachers are very much like pastors in that we're, we are the helpers. So for a helper to ask for help is not always easy. That's not an, an easy thing to do, which is why I love the, the, the phrase like emotional nutrition and the idea behind it being like, this is not help. This is necessary. <laughs> like we don't eat to help us stay alive. We eat to stay alive. That's different. Like the nutrition is not a helping thing. The nutrition is necessity. So reframing reframing it as like, I'm not asking for help. You're giving me life. I need this to live is a totally different way of looking at it. For me, I like, I like the way you phrased that. I wish you would have been one of the editors on my book. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> no one would ever wish that. <laughs> but I did appreciate the reframing in my own head when I read that. Yeah, it's it's so so important to find your tribe and to regularly gather. You know, a guy named Ethan Waters wrote this book called Urban Tribes, and it was basically about young urbanites who basically moved to these large urban centers and moved away from their families to follow their careers or whatever into the big cities. And they had regular rituals where they would get together for dinner or pubs on certain nights of the week and formed like a little surrogate family there together to help each other. And I think that there's a fair amount of that that we should do. Obviously we're going to have our biological family or our family of origin but um, and that's very helpful. And that's, you know, a, a great tribe for people to be a part of. Unfortunately, for people like me, you know, I moved many miles away from my family, my family of origin to, to be here. And I've been welcomed into uh, the family with with other people, you know, down here. And we just love that. Yeah, I think it's important, too, because then you actually have people that you can vent to, that you can. Like, I think when it's locked in your head, that's when the struggle just becomes really immense. But when you say it out loud to someone else, then you can, like, gain some perspective on it, right? Like, when you're the only perspective, you just can go, you can, your mind can run wild with whatever it is that you're thinking about. But when you have the community, whether it's your biological family or your surrogate family, then you can actually gain some perspective and people can do a little bit of a reality check with you. And then you make a plan, right? Like then you're like, okay, what, what let's run scenarios. What's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? What should I be preparing for? What should I be hoping for? But that's hard to do when, when you're a party of one. (laughs) That's exactly right. You know, you bring up a thought that I think is really great when you're in community with other people, they can help you think about your own thinking. So a little phrase that I have in the book is thinking about your thinking is not overthinking. Well, what happens a lot of times is let's say, for example, you know, I'm at work and the boss says something to me and it was just something very benign, you know, like, Hey, I need to see you in my office. And then your mind starts racing and you start thinking. So let's say an educator says, uh, you know, the, the principal says, Hey, I need you to see, need to see you in my office. And then your mind starts racing. Oh, forget it. oh no. What did I do? What did I do? She, the, the principal, she's going to call me in there. He knows. She's going to fire me. And I know she hates me. And then after she fires me, she's going to come hunt me down and she's going to kill me. I've seen the evil in her eyes. She's a murderer. She's going to kill me and I'm going to end up dead in a dumpster. And our minds keep racing on all this crazy stuff. Exactly. Oh, no. I know. 
So anyways, when you have someone around you, you say, well, you know, rationally speaking, I don't think your principal is an ex murderer, (laughs) but (laughs) maybe she just wants you to hand in a report or whatever. So anyways, my mind does that. My mind races. I mean, I just go to the nth degree, you know, and when I have other people around me that are, you know, can speak sanity in my life, you know, our mutual friend, Lorenzo Gomez, has this concept in his little book, Cilantro Diaries, of the personal board of directors. Yep, exactly. And those are the people that we give permission to speak truth into our lives. And we don't really receive truth like that. That's hard to hear from just anyone. So we have to deputize people to be on our personal board of directors to kind of tell us when we're overthinking something or when we're thinking down a wrong, wrong path. For sure, because we are, especially we, as in educators and teachers, we are great at venting. Like we have meeting, the meeting after the meeting is where the real talk happens. We are fantastic at it. We love to admire the problem. We could talk about the problem for days on end. Like it's just, it's a gift we've all been given, this (laughs) ability to admire the problem. Um, yeah, pastors but, never do that, Jen. <laughs> it's, but your book also kind of towards the end of it is talking about like venting in a strategic way. And I think the board of directors is part of that. Your personal board of directors is part of that uh, strategic or that strategy. But there's a bigger strategy too, right? Like when you're, if you got to vent to someone, vent to someone who can do something about it, somebody that's like big and powerful. Um, and so in your book, that person is God, like, and and you can connect to God personally, like straight up one-on-one and go to him. Yeah. Paul, the apostle Paul said, you know, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. And I noticed a lot of the venting that I was doing about personal wounds or offenses that I had taken up in my life were actually gaining power over me. Like I felt more and more and more and more bitterness as I would vent to other people. And so venting was actually creating more emotional slavery in my life. And I remember a guy who was out in California for something in Northern California. A guy was talking to me. He said, you know, he was very encouraging in the way he corrected me. You ever know those people that are just so good at, you know, they're really correcting you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, man. But they're doing it in a way that sounds, you know, and so anyways, basically what he was doing in a very nice way was telling me, you know, you're going to, Doug, you're going to have a spiritual promotion when forgiveness comes because you were hurt by a previous leader that you had worked with and forgiveness is going to come and you're going to do a lot better is what he spoke into my life. And immediately I knew what he was talking about and the person that I had been hurt by. And when I would vent to others here, there and everywhere else, it just, it just made the the hurt and the wound worse. And so I immediately texted this guy that I had worked with before that had kind of hurt me and just let him know how much of an honor it was to have worked with him. And no matter what's happened in the past, man, it's all good. And immediately it's like I didn't feel the need to vent anymore. 
And so usually venting is an in, more of an indicator of something in my heart than it is about what, what's been done by someone who's rubbed me wrong. For sure. For me too. You know, there've been countless times where I've been stewing over something for a really long time, which make the stewing over it. It's really an issue I have with somebody or something um, that I'm trying to make about them having an issue with me. Uh, And it just creates like this negativity that I walk around with or walk through pretty like through little cycles of negativity because I haven't let something go. Um, and it's hard, that's hard. Like that's a hard, that's a hard thing to, to let something go when it, when you are struggling with why it's happening to begin with. Um, but I do think there's, there's like living it out where you just do it anyway. Like you say it anyway, you send the text, you, I don't know, like that's, there's something in the act of just, I'm going to choose this. Even if I don't feel like it yet. That's right. When we hang on to stuff tight-fisted, we can't receive when our fist is closed. Right. But when we open it up and in prayer, vent to God about it and hand, it, hand the person, the situation, and all the feelings over to him, then our hand is in a position to receive from him. Yeah. And that's where I'm trying to get my thinking in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love talking to you. We could talk for another couple of days. We could have seven more episodes, Um, but I. (laughs) Well, we need to get you and Carlos up on the roof soon. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Anytime. Just tell me when. Tell me when. Um, Thanks for making time to sit and talk about your book. Where can people find your book? You can find it on Amazon. I am not defeated. Doug Robbins with one B R O B I N S. And. You'll find it just one notch above a little book called Mommy Lied to God. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And I know, um, you know, church is always church. Even the notion or topic of church is sometimes off-putting. And so if you are listening today and you are feeling weird that we went there and we talked about prayer and spirituality and church and finding a tribe, um, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to feel comfortable with it. Um, I'm trying to be who I am and, and this is who I am. And, uh, if you are interested and want to check it out, city tribe meets when we meet four times every Sunday, uh, 8:30 AM, 10, 11, 30 and 1 PM. Uh, downtown on Commerce Street at the historic Cameo Theater. Now for Easter services, we'll be at Sunset Station at the Lone Star Pavilion. Great open air place. You still have to wear your mask at our church and we social distance there. We've got great stuff for kids as well. And you can find out more information about our place if it's your cup of tea at citytribe.church, not .com, but .church. And if you want to, you know, if you're one of those people, it's like, eh, I'd rather watch it online to see what it's about and check it out before I come. Then uh, we're on City Tribe Media on YouTube and you can find us there. Sweet. Thank you.
Hey, you're certainly welcome. I'm so glad to be here, Jen. And I'm actually honored to be able to speak to your audience because I just have so much love and respect for educators and the way that they're grinding out week in, week out, making a difference in the trenches with students of all ages. So we need you educators to be healthy emotionally. And so we're praying for you. We're pulling for you and love you teachers. (laughs) Thank you, Doug. I'm Jen Maestas, and you're listening to Miss Education. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.